Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And this week, we move forward again in our transition to a slightly different format that we're going to be adopting uh, from the autumn onwards, following uh, Simon Elliott's departure to higher things. I think where we're going to go is we're going to take a short break in August. We've been doing this podcast for over two years now, and uh, I think we're probably due a short break. But uh, plans are well in hand to uh, move on to this new look podcast. And uh, that's going to basically, I think, in most weeks, it's going to feature two co-hosts rather than simply one, as in the past. And the second of those will be a specialist expert in one sector or another of the Investment Trust universe. So we can look a little bit more in depth at that particular sector. And this week, by way of uh, an example of that, later on in the podcast, I shall be talking to Colette Ord, who is the Renewable Energy and Infrastructure Analyst at Numis Securities and uh, has an enormous unrivaled knowledge of that particular sector. So that's coming up later. I would also remind you that uh, the Moneymakers Circle, which is a modestly priced subscription option, has another profile this week, as well as a summary of all the main announcements from investment companies. And uh, where you can follow a link, uh, we give you a link where you can follow immediately to the actual stock market announcement of that particular company. So it is a resource. We also have some data on the biggest movers in NAV share price and discounts over a range of different periods, typically over the past week and over year to date or the past six months in some cases. So that's, uh, I shall also have some notes on uh, latest market developments, including one particular piece of data, which I think is very interesting and explaining a little bit why uh, we have not seen what many were expecting, which is kind of widespread investor capitulation in the face of the falling stock market and the war in Ukraine, inflation, higher interest rates, and so on. So that's all there on the Moneymakers Circle at www.money-makers.co. Moving on to the markets now, it's been a better week for the equity market this week. We could say that it's uh, steadied after its uh, decline in the first five months of the year. And in fact, over the past month or so, we have seen quite a decent rally in uh, equity markets, uh, most equity markets around the world, including the UK and the US market. Both the S&P 500 and NASDAQ were up this week and uh, the S&P is up, uh, getting on for 10% over the past since mid-June. And it's on course for its best month since uh, 2020. Meanwhile, bond yields in the US, 30-year is steadying around 3%, 10-year 2.7%. And the uh, short-term three-month yield is at around 235 So bond yields are basically have steadied a little bit. And most of the other economic data we've seen is consistent with the idea that for the moment, at least, we've seen some easing of concerns about a recession or perhaps the idea that um, the Fed's interest rate increases are not going to go on for as long as some feared. This week, we heard that the Fed is raising its benchmark Fed funds rate by 75 basis points, 0.75%. But the uh, chairman, Jay Powell, did say that he was, it was likely that the rate of increase in interest rates to fight off inflation would slow somewhat. And the Fed is no longer giving any forward guidance uh, just as well because its past record has not been that good in that area, uh, but is going to base its decisions on what to do next uh, on a month-by-month data-led basis. Uh, And finally, perhaps I should mention in this context, the second quarter earnings season in the US, where we've seen a number of very large companies reporting their second quarter figures. And uh, well, it's been a mixed picture. Not quite perhaps as bad as some of the pessimists were expecting, but equally not exactly strikingly good, shall we say, uh, with a lot of variable performance. So, for example, we've heard from the big tech companies. We heard from Microsoft, Intel, uh, Meta, Amazon, Alphabet, and Apple. While some of them have seen their sales continue to rise, in others it's been a case of decline in sales. And uh, also in the case of uh, even those that are doing well, like Amazon and uh, Microsoft, The rate of growth is slower than it was in the past. Uh, And meanwhile, we've heard from big oil, a number of big oil companies who are all reporting very good profits, as you'd expect, given what's happened so far this year. 
So BP and Shell among them, and uh, perhaps also worth a mention to Pfizer, the drug company, which uh, has come up with quite a bullish statement this week, uh, but notable for the fact that it says that 50% of its revenues at the moment are coming from its anti-COVID vaccine and its anti-COVID antiviral treatment, which I guess is a reminder of the old adage that it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. Uh, and elsewhere, we've seen uh, oil prices stabilize a little, copper prices picked up, gold has picked up a little bit, and volatility has declined, and even Bitcoin has risen a little bit. So the, all these are consistent with the idea that the sell-off we've seen this year has at least pause. I think in the grand scheme of things, they're still pretty minor uh, movements. It's an uptick rather than any decisive change in trend, at least as far as one can tell. So uh, there's lots to uh, play for over the next few weeks as uh, the news plays out. In the investment trust sector, been a reasonable week, a little, little gain in the investment trust index this week slightly behind the uh, FTSE all share, uh, which has ended the week slightly higher. Uh, but the average discount hasn't really moved this week. It's, it's finished at around 7.7, .7, which is pretty much uh, where it started. Moving on then, uh, before I talk to uh, Colette Ord, a quick roundup of some corporate news. There's been no fundraising this week, uh, but on the corporate side, a couple of small housekeeping items. Uh, home REIT, Ticker HOME has joined the FTSE 250 index, the latest changeovers. The Personal Assets Trust, the share split that was approved by shareholders a few weeks ago, will be implemented from Monday. In which case, please don't wake up and worry that your price of your shares has fallen by 99%. There's been a 100 for 1 share split and the value of your shareholding won't have changed. That's presumably to make the share price more liquid make it easier to buy and sell the shares, which will become quite heavily priced in terms of unit price. And then a couple of other interesting developments. Well, first of is at uh, J.P. Morgan Russian Securities, which is, as its name suggests, an investment trust that uh, has been investing in Russian stocks and shares for well over 30 years. Uh, it's one of the uh, older emerging market trusts. And of course, it's had a horrendous year. I mean, since the outbreak of the Ukraine war in February... And the, uh, what we've seen is the closure of the Moscow Stock Exchange for a period. We've had a ruling that no dividends can be paid to Western shareholders. No share prices are quoted on the Moscow Exchange. Uh, as a result of which, it's obvious that uh, the holdings of the investment trust are effectively cannot be valued positively at this point. And so what we've seen is an extraordinary decline in NAV and share price terms. Over the last six months, the share price, for example, is down by 88% and the NAV total return is minus 94%. Uh, it's hard to think of a parallel here for such a dramatic uh, change in fortune, obviously none of which particularly sticks to the trust or to the managers or indeed to the board. It is a result of the war in Ukraine. But uh, it's given the chairman and the of the investment trust, a rather tricky half-yearly report to produce, uh, six months to the end of April, in which he explains what's happened and then goes on to say that uh, notwithstanding what's occurred, that uh, the trust uh, is going to seek shareholder approval to continue uh, as an investment trust uh, and that the managers will be given a mandate to invest in Eastern European equities and possibly who knows down the line, into Russian securities again at some stage, but that's not in the foreseeable future. So that is going to be put to shareholders at the moment. As I said, the share price is down a long way, but 93% of what is left uh, is in the form of cash. So the managers, by the way, JP Morgan, are not taking a management fee, have not taken a management fee since the end of February. And uh, while the dividends have been earned before the Russian invasion of Ukraine have been paid. That was 10p or so in respect of the earlier period. Uh, no dividends have been paid since then and none looks to be forthcoming. So this is a, a kind of unforeseen episode in the investment trust world. I think it's, well, it's very difficult to think of a parallel anywhere. And it will be interesting to see what the shareholders make of this, whether they think that actually it's worth maintaining this trust, even though it has only cash and has no access to the securities in which it's meant to be investing or whether they think that it could be worth hanging on for a while to see if uh, something can be salvaged 
from the wreckage. I wouldn't like to call that one. It is the shareholders who will, quite rightly, decide. On top of that news, we've had a couple of announcements affecting uh, two of the three trusts that are managed by Alliance Global Investors. The first of these is uh, Brunner, where the trust has announced that uh, Matthew Tillett, the manager, is leaving Alliance Global Investors and therefore will no longer be the manager of this particular investment trust. He's helping with the handover, but uh, he's been replaced on an interim basis, at least by Christian Schneider, a long-term serving member of the Alliance Global Investors team. And uh, the company will be looking for a new permanent manager in the next few weeks and months. Uh, Matthew's been the manager of Brunners for the last couple of years. He replaced uh, Lucy MacDonald when she left the company two years ago. The trust, though, uh, says business as usual. And uh, the share price actually hasn't responded much to the news. Uh, It's pretty much where it was. And the discount remains at around 12%, which is close to its average over the last year or so. So that's a management change. There's also been a change in arrangements at Alliance Technology Trust. This is a slightly more complicated story where the board has announced that Alliance Global Investors has transferred its U.S. investment business and its uh, employees in the U.S. to another company called Voya Investment Management. So the team that manages the Technology Trust, which is... Uh, now led by Mike Seidenberg, following the uh, planned or imminent retirement of Walter Price, the long-serving lead fund manager, is based in San Francisco, and they will be moving over to become employees of Wire Investment Management. As far as the trust is concerned, uh, the board pains to say that they've discussed this with Allianz Global Investors and uh, have satisfied themselves that there will be no change in either the strategy or in the arrangements affecting the future of the trust. So what's happened is that the uh, investment assets and the teams that Alliance Global Investor has in the US have moved over to this company, Voya Investment Management. But Alliance Global Investors will remain as the alternative investment fund manager in the UK and will continue to provide administrative and secretarial services to the company, including uh, its marketing functions. So essentially, the story from the board is that there is actually no change here. It's going to be business as usual here as well. Now, the background of this story is uh, slightly more complicated, which is that uh, Allianz Global Investors unfortunately had an issue with one of its uh, investment funds that it was managing in the US, which uh, got into trouble during the COVID crisis and has subsequently been charged by the SEC, the Department of Justice, with uh, fraudulent activity. Uh, That was uh, announced a couple of months ago. And uh, as a result, Allianz Global Investors has pleaded guilty to uh, a charge regarding that particular fund. uh, And as a result, has been banned from operating in the retail investment market in the US for a period of 10 years. This is why they've had to uh, make alternative arrangements for the management of their US funds. So obviously, that's an unfortunate uh, development for Allianz Global Investors. But in terms of the impact on Allianz, Technology Trust, it is uh, pretty minimal, in fact, in practical terms. And this week, the share price has barely moved in response to the news that this transfer has now been completed. The shares, though, do trade at around a 12% discount, which is a significant change from where they were until uh, quite recently. Uh, It wasn't that long ago that Allianz Technology was the best performing trust over five years in the whole investment trust universe and obviously had a very strong run during the pandemic and beyond, rising nearly 100% in one year, one 12-month period. But now it's uh, available at a discount of around 12%. has been slightly wider, has come in a little bit, but uh, that still compares to the the premium or uh, close to NAV value of which it was trading before the big sell-off in the tech this year, which has seen the NASDAQ uh, down by more than 30%. So that's the corporate news. There's some interesting items, unusual items this week. Uh, now it's time to um, turn to the alternative asset sectors and uh, renewable energy and infrastructure. So as I mentioned earlier, now having a chance to uh, discuss what's been going on in the renewable 
energy and broader infrastructure sectors this week with Colette Ord, who is uh, an analyst at Numis Securities and has been covering this sector for a fair few years now. I think it's fair to say, Colette. How many years is it? Yep. So since the first IPO, 2006. Right. Okay. So uh, you know enough about every company out there as anybody else out there in the market, that's for sure. So uh, let's kick off by quickly just talking about some of the results we've seen so far this week from these two sectors. And in fact, they've all been in the uh, renewable or renewable related sectors. Let's kick off with Greencoat UK Wind, ticker UKW. They produced some interim results for the six months to 30th of June, during which the NAV per share was up an impressive 15%. So what did you make of uh, these results, uh, Colette? How did they compare to your expectations? And uh, what did you take away from the announcement? So I think the key thing to take away from the announcement was obviously a very strong period, the six months to June for Greencoat. The main driver, of course, being the elevated power price backdrop that we see. And Greencoat is notably the most exposed to that because it has a a higher proportion of merchant revenues compared to some of the peer group. So cash generation from their assets was very strong and they reported a dividend cover of 3.8 times generated from the portfolio. So that would compare to a a level of around about 1.7 times normally. So you can see just how strong that position is relative to what they would expect in more normalized power price markets. So I think the other thing of note really on the green coat results was the change in discount rates. And that is really something that they were trying to emphasize. They have increased their discount rate, which you know on its own has a negative impact to NAV. So that offset their performance in Q2 in particular, it reduced the NAV by three pence. And the main reason for that increase in discount rate was partially portfolio mix. So relating to the fact that they have more merchant power cash flows and they of course are higher risk in the sense that they're less predictable than subsidy revenues. But the interesting bit was the commentary around changing discount rates also to reflect the rise in gilt yields, which has obviously been notable this year. They so far are the only fund to flag a change in discount rates for that. Most other managers, and in fact, Trig, the Renewable Infrastructure Group, who put out an NAV today, uh, said that they were maintaining discount rates to reflect the fact that you know, there remains strong demand for the asset class. So there's sort of a slightly different message from from two funds in the same sector. But, you know, the message from Greencoat was that on their assumption, that rise in gilt yields will filter through, although they were clear to say that they haven't yet seen transactions at those sort of levels, but they are uh, anticipating that potentially over time. So they moved their discount rate from 7.2% to 7.7%, 30 basis points of which was for that gilt yield adjustment with the remainder to do with their changing mix of cash flows. Okay, so we'll come back to that in a moment. I mean, they are distinctive in a couple of ways, as you've just mentioned. Let's just quickly again cover the TRIG, the Renewables Infrastructure Group, ticker TRIG. Uh, they had an NAV update. Uh, so these are not uh, interim results, just an NAV update. And uh, NAV per share, they say, at the end of June was up 12.5% over the uh, last period reported, which is 31st of December. So they're unusual. They only produce this uh, on a six-monthly basis rather than a quarterly basis, I think that's fair to say. That's correct, yes. So they've obviously also delivered a strong NAV performance ahead of our estimates. So inflation being a key driver, so inflation has been ahead of their model. And we don't know if they've changed their inflation assumption from those that they had at December, but certainly it's been running at levels that are higher than are in the model currently. And also, of course, power prices. And both Greencoat and Trig look at the market forward prices, which are quite elevated at the moment. And they apply a discount to those to sort of try and sort of give an idea of where they might be able to transact their cash flows. So, so both delivering a strong results, power price and inflation being key drivers over the half year, you know, 13 pence over the six months for Greencoat and, um, you know, a good number also for Trig. And so we'll come back and talk about the sector overall in a second. But then just quickly, let's cover off a, a couple more. So we've got uh, ECOFIN US Renewables Infrastructure Trust, ticker RNEW. Well, that 
Uh, I'm not quite sure whether they have a... Do they have a two-share class distrust or is it only one? I'm not sure. But anyway, they had a Q2 update and their net assets, they say, was... Uh, NAV at least was up, what, around 10%, something like that. Um, what uh, what did you take away from that one? Well, on a NAV per share basis, the, there was very limited movement, but they, again, the attribution or the detail, not quite as much in those. But I think, you know, they obviously benefit from a, a sort of fixed price portfolio through their PPAs. So less likely to capture the elevated power prices that, say, a UK business would be able to do, a UK business having much less PPA contracted revenue. So, you know, their, their performance was a stable NAV broadly, but it's a different set of cash flow exposures than you would get elsewhere in the market. So, I think the shares, you know, they're, they're trading positively, but I think more generally, the US focused renewable funds have been seeing sort of less excitement than it's fair to say the UK and European names because of that predominance with fixed price PPAs that exist in the US solar portfolios. Right. So they're, they're, you're saying their contracts are basically effectively fixed price rather than uh, they don't get the benefit of the merchant price movements. Is that right? Correct. Their valuation does, of course, alter with changes in power price forecasts because those those contracts do wind down over time. But in terms of the cash in the door, as it were, in terms of the income they're generating, you know, they, they won't be able to see the sort of upside that the likes of Greencoat was able to report, you know, well in excess of three pence uh, additional cash in the period. So, you know, that's just the nature of, of the contracts that the different funds have in place. Yeah, and I see that, of course, they raised some uh, equity in May, and that uh, accounts for the fact that the net NAV per share has gone up by less than the net assets of the of the company. Correct. That's correct, yeah. Okay, one more results to uh, comment on in this space uh, this week, and that is uh, Gore Street Energy Storage Fund, ticker GSF. Uh, obviously, energy storage is a relatively newcomer to the uh, sector, certainly unlike Greencoat UK Wind. Uh, they've had annual results uh, out for the year to the 31st of March, and their NAV per share was up 6% and total return NAV up 13% and share price total return up 11%. There must have been a slight discount movement there. What can we say about this particular trust? Yes. So again, I mean, the storage funds, they're, they're very much coming of age. Clearly, it's a very important part of the net zero journey. And the battery funds are, you know, exciting investors on the one hand with the kind of returns they've been able to deliver. You know, 13% NAV total return is certainly a good outcome. But I think what continues to be important to focus on is, is obviously there's a lot of construction assets in this portfolio at the moment. So there's still quite a lot of execution in bringing that through. And that sort of expectation of growth is to some extent already reflected in the share price premium that they trade on. And, you know, it will be interesting to see the management, you know, execute successfully on that sort of construction plan. It's been growing very fast. So the key messages really that I took away from Gore Street Energy is that they are growing very fast. And, you know, that is leaving them with lots of uh, assets to build out. So at the moment, they're running from a uncovered dividend. They target seven pence as a minimum. So that is uncovered at the moment based on the operating uh, assets and fund costs. The operating assets themselves generate enough cash to cover the dividend, but obviously then you have to take off fund expenses. So it's very much a journey that Gore Street are on. And, you know, as that portfolio matures, it will be interesting to see how much further potential NAV growth we might be able to see. But at the moment, the the shares are sort of priced to reflect an anticipation of growth. I think you could say there's been a difference in the quantum of NAV growth that that Gore Street has been able to report relative to some of the other storage peers. And again, partly that reflects the maturity of the portfolio, but something the management of Gore Street were keen to also highlight was that they feel that they've got relatively conservative assumptions around their revenue. So, you know, they've provided quite a lot of detailed analysis, which we're still working our way through. Um, But they've given an illustration to investors as to you know, the potential impact on NAV under both a high and a low case scenario, which I think is helpful in terms of framing where the shares may price over time. But certainly the sector is currently, you know, delivering decent returns for investors, albeit very much less visibility over the income that a battery fund can earn in any one period compared to, say, a generator where where there are a high prevalence of contracts. Would it be fair to say that uh, they are obviously potentially higher growth in the shorter term at least, and they target a slightly higher return, but they're also a higher risk effectively is what you're saying. Yeah, they are in the sense that, you know, 
they don't have the same predictability of income streams that other infrastructure businesses do offer. So you do have to accept that element. As you say, they they do target higher returns, which illustrates the slightly higher risk that you are taking. I think the other thing that's of interest, and we'll see how that plays out over time, is a lot of the generators targeting additional storage capacity, which could see the competitive landscape change for, for the storage-focused funds. And I think you know, pipeline is going to be important for them to that extent. And so, understanding how they can continue to buy, they've historically been buying on double digit IRRs each project. And so, if you've got a lot more capital chasing those projects from other parts of the market, which target lower returns, then, you know, it's going to be sort of interesting to see how the battery funds respond to that. But yeah, they're higher return, certainly doing um, well in the short term, Given the current volatility of the power price, which is which is a positive for these funds, um, and you know the, they are priced, I guess, at a wider premium compared to other segments of the green energy space, to reflect that. Yes, and I was going to come on to that point about the premiums. So, I mean, what we've seen, I think, across the uh, the generators at least, has been premiums have actually come in a little bit. They've fallen quite a long way in some cases from their kind of peak, uh, where they were some double digits in some cases. They're now back down to. Uh, uh, much more uh, reasonable levels, I would say, <laughs> compared to NAV. Uh, what's been driving that in in your view? So, I mean, part of it is the wider market generally. Obviously, other sectors have seen discounts sort of really widen out. You know, if you look across real estate, if you look across private equity, if you look across other parts of the market, we've seen obviously discount rates widen. And so, an element of it is sort of moving a little bit with the market. But I think also what investors have got in their mind at the moment is the rising gilt yield backdrop and what that may mean for for discount rates and NAVs over time. And also the regulatory backdrop is clearly evolving. We we are currently having a consultation, the REMA consultation is ongoing until October. And, you know, it's going to be the first significant change in the electricity market for over a decade. And so I think investors are just wanting to settle on what that means potentially for the sector. Uh, but I think, you know, notwithstanding the ongoing evolution that we expect to see in, in the wider market, I think, you know, the sector is, uh, as you say, it's it's certainly priced more attractively than it has been in the last 12 months, significantly away from its, its peaks. And ironically, at a time when cash flows are going to be at their absolute strongest because of the elevated power price backdrop that we see. Yeah, so you talked about REMA. That's a review of the energy markets, how it works. And I think uh, driven by concerns in government that basically some of these companies might, uh, across the whole generation, not just uh, renewables, obviously, uh, might be making more money than they are comfortable with, essentially. Is that right? How would you characterize what they're, what they're trying to do? It's actually a little bit more than that, obviously, in terms of the soundbite bits and pieces that have impacted share prices, particularly in renewables in recent months. Clearly, there was a threat of a windfall tax, the likes of which that was applied to oil and gas. That seems to have abated now. But what we are seeing is just really the the market looking at how we've moved on. I mean, the last major change to the, the regulatory backdrop was over a decade ago. And so, it's a lot of the pricing mechanisms, the support mechanisms, how it's all decided was set against a very different backdrop when renewables were a much smaller part of the overall energy mix. We've obviously got issues of energy security that have cropped up because of macroeconomic events, um, geopolitical events rather. So, there's a whole reason why governments are looking at how the energy market works in its entirety. And it's not just about pricing. Everybody wants to get the right level of investment at the right price for consumers and investors. And so, it's quite a wide-reaching backdrop that the the government are undertaking. As I say, you know, there are some scenarios out there which are put forward, all designed to try and, you know, deliver the best outcome, which is reach our net zero targets, recognise the importance of renewable energy in that mix, and, you know, price it effectively for consumers as well as investors. Uh, And obviously, that's a a wide-ranging scope. So, we don't see it 
as quite the blunt tool that the original windfall tax perception was was pitched. Uh, this is a much longer term review of the market rather than a knee-jerk reaction to claw back a single pool of cash from a specific non-repeatable event. This is about looking at how the market delivers net zero, uh, ensuring low carbon power is, is a key part of that and, and that the system remains flexible and adaptable to the supply and demand dynamics of it. So, we see it as an evolution, an understandable evolution, rather than sort of a one-off revolution to, to sort of claw back cash. It's 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 much more longer term to set the framework for growing renewables over the next you know twenty thirty years. Well, we always hope that uh, politics doesn't get involved in all this. Of course, that's not always helpful. So we can look back. I mean, the, the government obviously needs renewable energy, as you've said. And we look back at how the first generation of the renewable generators have performed. I mean, they've delivered, what, an annualised return of somewhere in the region of, what, 8 to 9%, something like that, per annum, which is towards the higher end, perhaps, of their target, original targets. But it's not like it's an excessive return in that sense. It's very nice to have, but it's not excessive by, uh, you would think, anyway. Exactly. And, and, you know, the key really is that these businesses, you know, they're obviously all nuanced, but, you know, they are there to invest into renewable energy and, and their business models weren't predicated on delivering, you know, excessive returns, you know, and that's why they've been managed very cautiously to try and, you know, mitigate the lows and where possible capture some of the highs. But these businesses, you know, they, they're they looking forwards uh, as far forward as they can in terms of pricing. So, you know, they are designed to deliver as stable a return as they can from from these portfolios. And I, I would agree that the, the sort of range of seven to nine that we've seen since IPO of the more mature funds, the 2013, 14, 15 vintages, I wouldn't suggest is egregious when we compare it to other kinds of asset uh, types. Indeed. And so, uh, we'll see a Key attraction of these uh, of renewable energy, well, across the whole sector, in fact, is the yields that they can deliver to investors in terms of dividends. How do those uh, yields now compare to you know where they've been? Obviously, as the premiums come down, the potential yield sort of rises a little bit, but uh, a lot of them are still in the five six percent range, which is pretty attractive. Yeah, I mean, the average for the sector is is five point three. There are obviously individual stocks that are yielding higher than that, particularly the solar focused businesses, you know, where you can get a yield of 6% or so fully covered from earnings after debt repayment and fund costs, et cetera. So, you know, as relative attractive income streams go, I would suggest that that's still at the top of the list, that income. So, it's well supported by cash. And yeah, I think it's an attractive spot for, for income investors. And just finally, then, in terms of uh, fundraising, obviously, these uh, trusts have all been growing fairly uh, successfully over time. They do quite a lot of uh, new fundraising, issuing of shares and so on. And we have had some IPOs as well across the sector in the last uh, couple of years, obviously not this year. Do you have any uh, views on which uh, which trusts are likely to come back for market for more just because of their commitments and their pipelines and so on? So those that are likely to issue this year, or or at least you know, I think the current ratings, we would expect to see some improvement in them first. But those that have got committed pipelines are obvious candidates to issue shares at some point, and that includes the likes of Greencoat UK Wind that got seven hundred and seventy one million pounds worth of commitments. It obviously has cash that it can use to part fund that, but we would expect a drawn position on their revolving credit facility at some point. Similarly, Trig have got five hundred odd of commitments. So we'd expect them to to draw down on their revolver some more beyond the 200 million they are currently, um, at which point we'd expect them to issue. We've seen a number of funds across the segments raise capital and also in mid-market infrastructure, the likes of 3i. We've been highlighting uh, 3i infrastructure have got around about £630 million worth of commitment. So there's a lot of potential issuance to happen over the rest of this year, You know, subject to where share prices are trading, of course. And again, most of these vehicles have been building steady pipelines. And so they're all a candidate for an issue at some point. But I think investors are definitely wanting comfort on pipeline execution and quality of pipeline, particularly around the kind of returns that can be delivered. And, you know, those funds that can give the best disclosure on that, I think, will be will be well received by the market. But it's definitely a challenging market for capital raises, given where share price ratings are. But, you know, pipelines are continuing to grow. The journey to net zero isn't going away as a theme. And, you know, the good businesses will continue to build their uh, opportunity set as a result of that. 
I think I wanted just to add this final question, which is, um, how do you think the market uh, reacts to the proposals by many uh, renewable energy trusts to broaden their mandates, in other words, either geographically or by a type of uh, renewable energy they're pursuing? Is that Has that been generally well received or is that another concern that some investors might have? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been generally well received. Pretty much every fund in some form or other has, has changed their mandate, whether it's been a tweak to the geographic exposure or the technology exposure. I think it's partly reflecting just the evolution of the market. And we've seen some very fast changes in prices in, in certain parts of the renewable space across the globe. And so it's natural that managers will want to broaden their opportunity set. Generally, it's been well received. Investors have been asked to vote for most of the changes and that they've voted them through. Is it a concern? I mean, I think, you know, as long as managers can put their current return targets into context with the need to change the mandate, then investors will support it. I think, as ever, when there's a change to a business plan that differs from the IPO, I think being open and honest as to the drivers of that and what it means from a risk-adjusted return perspective, then generally investors will support a change. But I think Change for change's sake is never good. I think there still has to be a good business case for, for, for achieving returns at the right risk level. But generally, we've seen it fairly well received by the market so far. Okay. Well, look, I'm going to stop that there because that was really, really good. Just give me in terms of the sort of calendar, what results are we going to have most of in the next few weeks? So you've mostly got renewables, uh, Q2 NAVs and results is the the next main results for core. So IMPP and Hickle and BBGI will be late August early September, late August, early September. But at the moment, you're going to have a flurry of Q2 NAVs out from the 12 generators. So it's going to be very much renewable energy focused until late August. And uh, just on that, are you uh, expecting any major surprises from that? Or are you expecting some sort of typical pattern similar to that, which we've seen from those who have reported already? No, I think, I mean, our, our sort of RAM document hopefully suggested that we're expecting positive news from from pretty much all of the operators. The nuance is in, in who does what with their discount rates and, and other model inputs. So, as I say, we've seen, we've seen Greencoat come out and change their discount rate this morning, which at the moment they are an outlier in doing so. So, it'd be interesting to see if anybody else follows suit and, and how the market perceives that as a wider trend, because obviously, Increasing discount rates is a negative driver of NAV, but at the moment, there's a, there's enough other positive moving parts that suggest NAVs will just continue to grow. So, we're not expecting any major shocks. You know, I, I think Greencoat have probably been, with their discount rate moves, that they'll probably be the outlier in news flow terms. Since recording that segment with uh, Colette, we've had one more result from uh, Renewable Infrastructure Trust, and that is Octopus Renewables Infrastructure, ticker O-R-I-T, which reported a second quarter NAV total return of 8%, so a pretty strong performance, I think ahead of guidance at least, and uh, the principal driver there being, as in the other cases, increase in forward pricing assumptions, albeit with a higher discount, and some changes to short-term inflation assumptions. Unlike uh, UK Wind, which we discussed, or it has reiterated its view that discount rates are remain appropriate, underpinned by the level of the kind of transaction prices that are being seen at the moment, uh, similar to what uh, Trigg had said. So those shares are currently trading at a modest premium of around 2% to 2.5% to the latest NAV, and uh, the yield is around 4.6% for comparison with those we've just been discussing. So moving on now, we're going to finish with a quick roundup of uh, some of the results this week. We're not going to do the normal comprehensive survey. That's really no longer feasible. So I'm going to concentrate just on a few that I think are worthy of note this week and uh, mainly those that uh, feature in the global and flexible investment sectors being among the most popular investment trusts. Just a reminder, though, that if you are interested in uh, other trusts, uh, there is a comprehensive list of all the announcements this week on our website inside the Moneymaker Circle subscriber paywall and uh, that is there for you to look at if you really want to cover everything this week. I'm just going to quickly mention the main names and make a couple of comments uh, rather than go through each one in exhaustive detail. So top of the list this week would be uh, Foreign and Colonial and Alliance, two uh, venerable senior members of the investment trust world. FNC being the original investment trust back in 1868 and Alliance Trust following a few years later. They're both still doing what they've been doing for a while, but in a slightly different way. 
So global investment, primarily in equities, though Foreign and Colonial has some interest in uh, private equity as well as uh, publicly listed equities, whereas Alliance concentrates on it has a multi-manager approach where it uh, has a total of 10 portfolios managed by nine different firms, uh, each of them using their stock picking skills to, uh, to pick their best ideas effectively, which are then uh, managed overall in terms of asset allocation by Watson, Towers and Willis, the uh, investment consultants. Uh, that's been the strategy for a few years now. They changed the strategy a little over five years ago. And uh, these results, uh, well, these are interim results for the period to the 30th of June in both cases. And they're very similar, effectively. NAV total return of minus 9.6 for foreign and colonial, FNC, as it's now known, and against a benchmark of a fall of 10.7% total return over that uh, same period. And the share price total return was minus 11.8. So the discount has widened a little bit there for F&C. Uh, with Alliance, performance was minus 10.5, a negative total return. So down just over 10% overall uh, against the benchmark of 11. They have both slightly different benchmarks. And the share price total return of minus 11.3. So what can one say about this? Well, the issue always for these uh, big generalist trusts is... Uh, you know, can they compete against, uh, not so much now against each other, but against global index fund of some sort? And uh, in both these cases, the uh, performance in this interim period is like slightly behind the benchmark, though with slightly different uh, underlying performance. FNC said that they're um, increasing the dividend. They have paid an interim dividend of 3.2p, and they will be increasing it for the full year, uh, though it's unlikely to be covered by earnings over this period. It will have will be the 52nd year of successive dividend increases, one of the AIC's dividend heroes. But they pointed out, though, that the revenue reserves that the, this uh, trust has built up over many years is significantly higher than the full year dividend that's going to be proposed at the end of the period. So that dividend record will at least uh, go on. This one is managed by a gentleman called Paul Niven, and it consists of a combination of mainly directly equity investments and some investments in funds. Uh, notable this year was the decision to uh, stop investing in global smaller company equities. That was a decision taken by the managers, uh, reflecting their view of uh, current market conditions as well as the likely impact of that particular segment on potential returns. It's just arguably you could be too small to make a big huge difference. However, interesting development. In the case of Alliance, Recently, this trust has decided to bump up its dividend to a much higher level, and they're paying an interim dividend of 6p, which is 60% higher than the one they paid the same period last year. This is an attempt to provide a greater proportion of dividend income to its investors. But the dividend yields on these two big global trusts remain fairly modest. It's now 2.5% in case of Alliance and uh, just over 1.5% in the case of Foreign and Colonial. Both of them are trading on similar sort of discounts at the moment. FNC is on around 8%, 8.5%, has been a little higher actually, up to more than 10% at one point. And uh, Alliance is trading uh, at around, as I said, 7%. So these two continue to be uh, battling it out for the attention of investors in the global sector. Moving on then, we can more or less compare them with uh, a Scottish-American investment trust. This uh, sits in the global equity income sector and pays a slightly higher dividend, about 2.7%, managed by Bailey Gifford, but not in what we come to know as the traditional Bailey Gifford style, a high growth orientation, exposure to private equities as well. Uh, this one was uh, managed in a different style. It's much more uh, conventional, focused more on income. And their reporting period for the same period, interim is to 30th of June. And their portfolio has a negative NAV total return of 7.6%. So marginally better, a couple of points better than uh, F&C and 3% better than uh, Alliance, reflecting the difference in styles, essentially. Their benchmark was down 10.5%, so they outperformed that. The total shareholder return, though, was uh, minus 13%, so actually worse than the other two trusts over that period, because clearly the discount widened. In this case, Bailey Gifford also, as well as equities, they also have a, a portion of the portfolio in bonds and property. And the property portfolio actually stood out with a gain of 5.9% uh, 
over the period. Uh, whereas in the case of FNC, uh, it was their private equity holdings which actually uh, bucked the general trend. Finally, in this uh, comparison, we can talk about uh, MIGO opportunities. As well, you'll know, last week we talked to Nick Greenwood at length, so we're going to cover these results in any great depth. It trades in the flexible sector, as we know, rather than the global sector, mainly, and the portfolio consists of other investment trusts, typically special situations, what we call special situations where the manager Nick Greenwood and his co-manager Charlotte Culbertson are looking for situations where discount movements can be expected, positive discount movements, as well as uh, underlying performance in the kind of more obscure corners of the investment trust universe, where there may be more pricing inefficiency. Anyway, over the year to the 30th of April, uh, Mike Opportunities produced a positive return, but this is a full year return, not a six-month return, uh, and that was 4.8% gain, which was against their benchmark, which is to beat cash effectively by 2%. So they'd managed to do that, but the share price total return was 2.7% as they moved uh, to a mild discount uh, over that period. And uh, for the first time, MyGo Opportunities is actually paying a dividend because under investment trust rules, you have to pay out a proportion of your income that you receive into a investment trust. And so they will be paying a dividend 0.4p. But that, as I made clear, is not really the major purpose of MIGO Opportunities, which is to generate capital returns. Of the remaining companies making announcements this week, I'd like to single out a couple which seem to me of interest. The others you can catch in the way that I described before. So let's kick off with Aberthworth Smaller Companies Trust, ticker ASL. This is, as name suggests, a smaller companies trust has been in existence for uh, something like 30 years. Uh, though the original founders have retired, they've trained a series of second-generation fund managers to succeed them. And uh, this is their half-yearly report for six months to 30th of June, so the same period as the bigger global trusts. And in this period, they were down uh, sharply, not surprisingly, given what's been happening to smaller company share prices, down 16.8% NAV per share, which, however, is slightly better than the 20.2% decline in the benchmark, which is the Numis Smaller Companies Index, excluding investment companies. So what happened, what hurt here? Well, this is essentially the sell-off in smaller company stocks. Uh, their value style actually did relatively well over this period. Value has been doing slightly better than growth, as we know, but uh, not enough to uh, offset the wider market drivers. Uh, interesting thing here, though, is to look at the commentary from the trust they talk about the valuations of their portfolio and how that compares to uh, both their benchmark and the wider universe. Uh, and they make the point that uh, the companies they own, partly as a result of their particular value bias, on the whole, they have pretty strong balance sheets. So even if we are going into recession, as uh, many believe, these uh, smaller companies will be better placed to withstand that, at least so they argue. And uh, more interesting also is they talk about the valuations on the portfolio. And they say that uh, uh, while the price-earnings ratio of the numerous smaller companies index has declined markedly in the course of the first six months, it was down from 16.6 times at the end of last year to 9.8 times at the end of the period in question, 30th of June. But the uh, average P ratio of the Aberforth portfolio is actually down from 13.2 times to 7.8 times. So it's still markedly cheaper than the uh, the market as a whole. Uh, and they make the comment that at 7.8 times, the portfolio is more than one standard deviation below the long-term average PE for, uh, for them at 11.5 times. And they say this has only happened on three previous occasions. In the early 1990s, uh, where there was a recession then as well, of course, in uh, at the start of the 90s, uh, around the uh, global financial crisis of 2008 and during the pandemic uh, two years ago. And each episode, they point out, was associated with a UK recession. So clearly, they go on, the threat of a demand downturn spurred by high energy prices and tighter monetary policy is preoccupying equity investors at present. Well, they could say that again. But they also make the point that uh, even if earnings were to fall by 30%, the uh, portfolio would still be trading on 11 times earnings, which is in line with their 31-year long-term average they've experienced since they've been managing the portfolio. So, well, you can take from that what you like. I think the uh, idea that we're going to go into recession is mentioned by, you know, most of the managers who are reporting at this stage. 
it does seem to be certainly uh, possible, more likely probable, but not yet certain. So the market is discounting that. The real question is how long would any slowdown in economic growth or any recession, how long would it last and how deep would it be? How damaging would it be? And that, of course, is something we have yet to wait and see. The other trust that I was going to mention in this context is uh, Law Debenture. This is an interesting trust in the UK equity income sector, which, uh, as regulations will know, combines an equity portfolio managed by Hendersons, Janice Henderson, uh, with a professional services business uh, that provides a series of corporate uh, services to companies, legal and other services to companies. So in the six months of 30th of June, Law Debenture produced NAV total returns of minus 4% and negative 4%. Uh, so better than the uh, average investment trust, certainly better than the global investment trusts, and outperforming the 4.6% return from the FTSE All Share benchmark. The most significant contributes here in absolute terms were the holdings in the energy sector, benefiting from rising commodity prices, and uh, the detractors included some of the tech companies that they still own, such as uh, Axis Technologies and uh, some of their consumer discretionary names, including Marks & Spencer also performed poorly. They make the point, though, that since the 30th of June, end of the period, the NAV is up another 1.8%. So that's Law Debenture, a pretty solid set of results there, down, but not uh, materially down, slightly ahead of the FTSE All Share during their reporting period. Of the other announcements, you can find them on the website, and uh, they include updates from uh, Seraphim Space, Taylor Maritime and a number of infrastructure trusts as well. We're going to come back to the infrastructure sector later with another specialist review. So that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Slightly different format, as I said, from before. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll look out for the news as we take this uh, podcast forward. I've got some quite ambitious plans to expand the audience and the range of what we do, and uh, I hope you'll stick with me at least through this uh, interim period while uh, we take a break uh, during August. There will be a podcast next week, but after that, there will be an interruption for a couple of weeks. So that's it, and I uh, look forward to uh, talking to you again shortly. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.